Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome along to today's edition of The Profile. I'm Justin Briley and today I'm in conversation with Sir Colin Humphreys, who is a scientist. He's going to be talking to us about his scientific career, as well as someone who delves into some of the mysteries of the Bible as well. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about some of the ways he's come to reconcile and understand some of the interesting parts of the Bible that often leave us scratching our heads. If you're listening to The Profile today on Premier Christian Radio, then you're very welcome to go and re-listen to it as a podcast or tell others about it and share it that way. You can find the podcast of today's show at premierchristianradio.com slash theprofile or wherever you find your podcast from. And don't forget that The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. We have all kinds of great interviews with all kinds of people in the magazine from month to month. And you can get a free sample copy at our website, premierchristianity.com slash free sample welcome along to the program colin great Hi. to have you here thank you justin it's Good. it's lovely to talk to you um i i've known of you for some time this is the first mm-hmm. time we've met so it's it's really nice to, to 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 actually be able to see you and talk to you because um i think it probably the first time we may have had a sir on the program as well sir colin okay, Humphrey. Right. When, when did you receive your knighthood in 2010 ah was that a surprise was that, that come out of the blue for you it was a huge surprise i mean should i tell you the story yes that's please a, so, do. I so, like it, yeah. well, th- this story was i, I was at work and my wife phoned and she said there's a curious envelope in the post <laughs> but but don't throw it away when you come and it's not uh, junk mail not junk mail <laughs> well it's more than that worse, worse than that so she said um it's in an envelope that the royal mail have put a, put a plastic cover on and they said the contents have been destroyed in our sorting machine right but uh, anyway so i go home and and and, and this, this is true right it's this big plastic envelope royal mail on site they say we apologize you know they're I contents have been damaged in our shorting machine so I go inside and it's like reconstructing three dimensional jigsaw puzzle put this letter back together again and um, it says that you know, it's from the cabinet office and it, and it says that uh, the, the Queen's minded to give you a knighthood and, uh, and you must reply by a certain date if you'll accept and the date had passed so this had been obviously oh, delayed in the system for some time and I immediately thought it was a student hoax right so I was going to do nothing <laughs> and and my wife said, you better phone the number. So Just I, in case. Just in yeah. case. That's right. So I phoned this number and, uh, and uh, I said, uh, my name's Colin Humphreys. And this very sort of plummy voice <laughs> and I said, Professor Humphreys? I said, yes. They said, we've been wondering why you haven't responded. And I said, well, you know, the letter was damaged in the post. I've just received it. And so that's how I got my got the letter. Yes. Isn't that that's, funny, though? It, it is remarkable. Of yes. all the letters to get damaged in the post. Yes, that's, that's right. Yes. <laughs> wow. There you go. Um, so don't, don't feel embarrassed no. to, to talk about this. But what were you being recognised for in being given that knighthood in 2010? Right, so the citation was services to science. Mm-hmm. But what is unusual is I still do not know who proposed me. <laughs> so normally you know. Yes, you know, normally yes. people contact you or they ask for your CV or something and there'll be no contact from anybody, nothing like this. So mm. it just, uh, it's still a mystery to there me. You I, go. I try to find out. I, I have no idea. Well, but, who, perhaps one day someone will, <laughs> someone will let you know. <laughs> right, put your yes. name forward. Anyway, um, science has obviously been your background for a long, long time now. Um, when did you get into science? Was it something that you knew from an early age you wanted to be involved with? So at home, I was actually from quite a poor family mm. and we really had, you know, just very few books. But one of them was a children's encyclopedia. And so I, would re- I read this about 10 times as a child and, and, and I was interested in the science aspects. And then I started breeding butterflies and moths and got mm. involved in that and um, went to school and was quite good at science. And so I then did A-levels in science, went to Imperial College London, did a degree in physics and I just stayed in science. I then yeah. you know, moved to Cambridge, did a PhD, and, uh, and I just continued like and, that. And the specific area you, you moved in and specialised in was material sciences, especially. Yes, that is right. So initially I got a degree in physics and a PhD mm. in physics, and then moved into material sciences, which is a sort of science of solid materials. Yes. It's a bit more applied than physics. Yes, and, and that has all kinds of applications, I assume, in terms of technology and that sort of thing, where yeah. types of different materials that people use for 
electrical conduction and all of that sort of mm. thing are, are very important, obviously. Well, yeah, materials are a limiting factor in almost everything we use. So mm. solar cells, the limiting factor on efficiency is materials, you know. Mm. How fast jet engines go, Rolls-Royce engines in planes, how fast they go is limited by the materials they contain. So, you know, it's just a basically really important subject. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and was faith also something that you sort of knew and had from an early age? Yes, because my parents were Christians and my father was a superintendent of a Sunday school. Oh, right. So we actually went to church three times a day. Not a day, on Sunday, three times on Sunday. That's right, three times a day a bit much. And, uh, and so um, I, w- I was brought up as a Christian yes. and became a Christian at an early age. W- would you say there was a moment when things clicked into place for you when it wasn't just your, your parents' faith inherited, as it were, where it became your own? Yes, so I, I was baptised, I think, the age 14, 14 mm. or 15, um, and so I made a positive decision then, uh, but then I actually rejected it a bit later. Oh, did you? Okay. Mm. You went through a sort of, was this a sort of teenage rebellion or something a bit more of an adult kind of doubt it, came it, in for some reason? It was really when I was at a sixth form in school mm. and I learnt more about science and I learnt there were sort of conflicts between science right. and, and religion. And so... I thought, I mean, I was taking A-levels, and I thought, mm. you know, I can't sort this out now, but I'll put it on hold, <laughs> yes. and uh, I'll sort it out when I go to university. And so I went to university, and um, I started to read books on science, books on, on Christianity, and um, I looked at, I read a gospel, really, for the first time. Okay. I read it thinking, you know, I was there in, in Jerusalem mm. or mm. Israel mm. in the first century AD, and just listening to the words of Jesus. And I decided that lots of other people have said that Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. Mm. And it was not an easy decision. Mm. You know, that's why I appreciate mm. atheists, mm. because, yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. not an easy decision. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but I finally, uh, finally decided that it was true, mm. but I decided I didn't want it then. Oh, so right. I thought, I'll come back to this. I, I was a student, first-year mm. student, mm-hmm. having fun at university. I thought, I'll come back to this in later <laughs> life. And um, as it happened, I was sharing accommodation in, in a, a house in Chiswick um, with two people who were Christians and that was mm. pu- purely by accident one a medic and one a, one a uh, pharmacist student and uh, they went to church so I went to church with them and I pretended I was a Christian <laughs> so I, I, I you know I, so it was bizarre and, and the girls were quite attractive there so I you know, went to church there as well right and, 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 and then after the church service um, the, the, we, we went back to the minister's house which was very really nice I had coffee and so on and then we sort of walked back to where we lived and um, I was walking back near Chiswick flyover I think mm. um, with a person I really didn't know as an accountant and he's turned to me and he said Colin you said uh, I want to be a Christian you, you're a Christian please tell me how and here I was <laughs> decided <laughs> so to, to pret- reject pre- it pretending to be a <laughs> Christian to and be a being Christian. asked how yes. to become one gosh so so I thought well I actually do know how to tell him to become a Christian but it won't really have any conviction. No. On the other hand, if I say I'm not a Christian, I shouldn't destroy his faith. Right. So I sort of chickened out. You and sort I of had this quandary. I had this quandary, <laughs> that's right. Chickened out, and I said, why don't you just go and contact the minister? Which he, I, I'm very thoughtfully, thankfully <laughs> did, and he became a Christian. But that night I just went to my, you know, my room in this house in Chiswick, and I thought, I cannot sit on the fence like this. So I really dedicated my life to God there. Oh, you that, did? That, you that, decided that, to... Mm, I just said then to be a Christian then, not, 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 like, not to, to leave life. it to later. Right, yes. How yes. interesting. Mm. And, and the things that sparked your uncertainty in terms of coming to see that there was some kind of conflict between mm. science and faith, was that because of the way science and the Bible were presented to you as a child or growing up in a Christian context? Were they... Were there things about it that seemed to conflict with what you were learning in school about the the scientific record? Yes, I think, well, my parents were what are called young earth creationists. Mm. So Mm. they believed the world was created, you know, about 4000 BC. And I was learning about radioactivity in schools and radioactive dating, which, you know, suggested the world was a lot older than that. Billions of years Uh, old, yeah. That's right. So that that was was Mm. the first order. That was the main conflict I had. How did you eventually come to reconcile that? I reconcile that by thinking the world really was very <laughs> old. And, uh, but I have a great respect for creationists. Mm, you know, there's mm, a great spectrum of Christian sure. belief. Mm. But yes, yeah, so I, so I, I believe and, the world And that you didn't spirit. have to understand the early chapters of Genesis in a particular way. Was that the way that you eventually came to sort of 
yes, see that there wasn't a conflict there. That, 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 that is right. That is mm. right. So, I mean, a lot, a lot of the Bible is quite straightforward to understand, mm. but some isn't. And I think the early chapters of Genesis are like that. You know, when you have a serpent that, that talks mm-hmm. and you have a tree called the tree of life, and you're in, there's the last book of the Bible, Revelation had a tree called the tree of life, and no one believes that's a literal tree. But creationists tend to believe the tree of life in you know Book of Genesis, mm. a literal tree, mm. and so you don't have to do that. It's it's metaphorical language. I suppose it's about for you, I guess, coming to understand what we are supposed to take in a literal sense and what we're mm. meant to understand as being a different sort of way of un- genre, let's say, of, of scripture and so on. Um, I mean, obviously, you went through that whole mm. journey and, and were able to sort of come out of university as a Christian, someone who mm. who had committed to this. Um, what about the rest of your scientific colleagues, though, as you were going, doing more research and teaching and so on? Did did you find that they had any commitments generally to faith or, or were you rather on your own as a as a Christian believer? So, no, I wasn't alone. So Imperial College had a Christian union, which I joined mm. uh, after after deciding to yeah. be a Christian. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Again. And uh, and so and, and Imperial College is just about all scientists. So this Christian mm. union, mm. which was you know quite strong, I mean, yeah. maybe maybe 100 members or more, uh, they were all scientists who were believers. Do you find that scientists tend to approach faith in a, maybe a bit of a different way to the average person? I think so, yeah, because my wife tells me scientists think differently from the average person <laughs> and everything, that's right. So, so I think uh, scientists are particularly interested in evidence. You know, mm. we're brought up to believe, yeah. to look for evidence. And mm. so when you're a Christian, if you're a scientist, you don't leave your you know, scientists behind. You know, yeah, you yeah. read the Bible through the eyes of a scientist. Yeah. Yes. And 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 what what does, is that? What's provoked? I guess the the various books that you've written on this this you know because one of the books you've done is looking at the Old Testament and mm. some of the miraculous events in there. Mm. You've also turned your attention to the events of Holy Week and and how we come to understand exactly when the Passover supper happened and when Jesus was crucified mm. and those sorts of things. Mm. I mean, not that many people would spend their time researching and delving into those kinds of issues. What what made you want to do those kinds of bits of research in your spare time apart from obviously what you're doing on a scientific basis right well it's actually a very simple answer so my father bought my uh, younger daughter a book called great men of history which mm. a bit like what's called i mean every page had had person in there there was there was jesus christ there was christopher columbus there was uh, julius caesar mm-hmm. and every page had something like this and and the front the front page of the book just had a sort of index and it listed all these people with the dates of birth and death and so everyone had a definite date of birth and death apart from jesus christ where it said born 4 bc question mark died AD 30 question mark mm. and my daughter who was eight years old said to me daddy why do we know the dates of birth of all these other people but not of jesus and mm. i thought well that's a really good question and mm. that sort of set mm. me off on that mm. and then it so happened that that sunday i was in church it was easter sunday and listening to a reading uh, from Luke's Gospel, I think it was, and maybe a, a, not the standard text of Luke's Gospel, another version. Mm. And um, the, the Gospel talked about the three hours of darkness at the crucifixion, which I think all the Gospels say. Mm. But this version of Luke's Gospel said, for the sun was eclipsed. And I immediately thought, gosh, if the sun was eclipsed, then we can retro- we can use astronomy. We can not only yeah. astronomy. You can calculate future eclipses. You can wind the, wind the equations of motion of the Earth and the Sun and Moon back. Again. You can calculate past eclipses. So we can say when Jesus was crucified. And um, so I thought it's, it's not shouldn't be uncertain at all. You know, you can mm. pin this down. Mm. If there was a, an eclipse of the natural the natu- variety, the natural variety, then, that's then, right. Then it you will could, be there in the records of, of the, 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 the planetary but, motions. But, yeah. you, but you, yes, and we can wind back yeah. the planetary motion and calculate it. So. Um, it also so happened that I had working with me at that time a very good astrophysicist who had been writing his PhD thesis but run out of money, and I had some money to employ him as a computer person. <laughs> so, I, so I went to see him and said, a uh, guy called Graham Waddington, I said, Graham, can you, can you calculate you know, this, this, this eclipse? And if there was an eclipse, if there was mm, a solar eclipse mm, seen mm. from Jerusalem, uh, when, when Jesus was, was, was around the time Jesus was crucified. And so... Uh, he came back that afternoon, I saw him in the morning, <laughs> and he said, Colin, it's impossible. And I said, why is it impossible? He said, because uh, the crucifixion was at Passover time, that's well documented, and Passover time is full moon time, and you can only have a solar eclipse at new moon time. And so I thought, gosh, that's interesting. Mm. And um, so then I looked at what Luke actually said, mm. and I found that only half of Luke's the ancient manuscripts of Luke mm. had these words for the sun was eclipsed added. Right. And what the what the um, 
Greek actually says is, for the sun's light failed, right? Ah, Okay. And, and, you know, if you want a scientific mechanism, mm. then a dust storm can do this. And I've yes. been in a dust storm in the, in right. the Middle East yes. and it, the sunlight suddenly cut off. So, but anyway, so I then got interested and um, uh, got involved in what the data crucifixion might have been. I just followed this up. And, um, you know, one of the things you can say is Jesus died on a Friday. Mm-hmm. He died in the 10-year period, AD 26 to 36. That's mm-hmm. when Pontius Pilate was mm-hmm. procurator of Judea and so mm-hmm. on. And um, uh, he died around Passover time. And you can say, when was Passover time around Friday in the period AD 26 to 36? And you can start to rule out some yes. of those dates. So you start to, by a methodical process, yeah. say... Okay, according to what we know from the Gospels, yeah. we can rule out this date, this date, this date. That's right. Did you manage to arrive on a date and in I, the end? And I arrived on a date in the end, that's and right. what was that date? And that was the 3rd of April, AD 33. Right. And that was one of the most popular dates of the crucifixion. So if you look at you know theologians and what mm, they believe, mm. the most popular date is AD 30, but the second most popular date is AD 33. Well, it's very often they're out there in the general culture that Jesus died around the age of 33. That seems to be a, yes. a, a, a popular sort of age that people yes. have landed on. And yes. that obviously fits the, the, your calculation. So what struck you as the most likely reason for this, uh, the, this darkening of the sun then? Was it some sort of a dust, dust cloud event or simply a supernatural event? What, what, what do you think might have been behind that? I mean, I, so, so right, as a scientist... Um, I look for natural events first for mm. for, for any miracles, mm. um, because I I also think that you know they are supernatural and that God is working in with and through the nature He created, and that's what God would normally yeah, do. Yeah. You know, um, God works with what's already there. Yeah, God's what's that's right exactly. And so I think if you want a natural mechanism, and I I suspect it was, then mm. a, then a dust storm makes sense. Yeah. And there's an early early writing. It's called the Sibylline Oracles. It's in the New Testament Apocrypha, and it's talking about the Messiah. And it says dust was brought down from heaven and blotted out the sun from noon. Mm. You know, so mm. that that's almost that's yes. saying yeah. this was a dust yeah. storm. So there's some evidence. But yeah. then, of course, I suppose there are some miracles or account things that simply are miraculous you know the resurrection of jesus christ mm. for, a, for a start i mean mm. would you ever try to give a naturalistic account for that or, or is that simply a direct as it were intervention of god going against the natural laws right so i i thought quite hard about yes. this that's right yes. and um i think there were so many apparently natural laws broken at the resurrection mm. so it's not just the empty tomb mm. it's that um Jesus appeared afterwards you know, through locked doors with mm. his disciples. And, mm. and that's, that's sort of emphasised in the Gospels. And so to go through locked doors is something which, you know, we don't normally do. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and just the ascension afterwards, so Jesus just goes up mm. to heaven, as it mm. were, in a bodily form. So, so I think that uh, God was breaking his own laws then. Mm. Uh, which is a problem for some theologians that God would break yes. his own laws. Is it a problem uh, for you or do you think God's, I guess, as the creator of the laws, is, yes. is has a liberty to break them if he chooses? Yeah, I think he has liberty. Can I give an analogy? Which yes, may, please m- do. Which may take yeah. a, you know, a, a couple of minutes. But, Go I, ahead. But, but I find it quite helpful. So that is, let's imagine that you go into a room and someone's playing a piano and you walk behind them and you watch their fingers on the keys and they've got no music. Mm. But you notice that whenever they go to play the note F, they play F sharp. And mm. they do this repeatedly. They never play F. They play F sharp. Mm. And then, if you're a musician, you think, Ah, they're playing in the key of G major. I think, if I got it right. Right. And and this is the instructions that the composer gives to the player. So mm. on a on a piece of music, at the start of each line of music, yes. he'll put a little sharp sign against mm-hmm. the F, F. So you, that's the instruction to play yeah. F sharp. And and so scientists are trying to do this, and we're trying to reconstruct the laws by which the universe operates by observing it. Mm. But if you continue watching the pianist, you may find that sometimes he doesn't play F sharp, he plays F. And sometimes he plays A, a, a flat mm. or C sharp. Mm. And you say, I know what's happening. The composer said, he's put in an accidental. So he's instructed here you to do this. <laughs> and because it's the composer, he's free to break his own rules. Mm. But if he's a great composer, it will make better music. Right. You know, it has to be a positive thing. And then I think with the resurrection, so many accidentals are put in, and p- composers can do this, and mm. they, they actually change the key signature physically for, for a bar or two. And so, again, God has just physically changed that yeah. key signature, and Jesus is operating according to different rules you know, for this period <laughs> of time. 
Now, you said the, the, there were a number of other Christians around you in your scientific profession. I mean, going forward mm. in that, did the, the ones who weren't, did they ever sort of see your uh, Christian faith as in any way in, in conflict with the science that you were doing? Or did it never really come up in the laboratory sort of setting? Um, it comes up from time to time. So mm. um, a few years ago... I had three new research students, and I went through in the morning. I said, you know, this is what your projects are going to be. In the afternoon, one was from China, and there's this knock on the door. And to start, most Chinese students, when they arrive, are really quite obedient, and you, mm. they don't question <laughs> you. But, but this one uh, knocked on my door, and he stood there. I said, well, can I help you? He said, I'm told you believe in God. It's, it's the first day is there, you see. So, so, gosh. Yeah, yeah. I said, gosh. So I said, uh, does this surprise you? And he says, in China, we're told you cannot believe in God, especially if you're a scientist. And mm. so he said, I'm very surprised. And I said, would it surprise you if I told you a lot of scientists believe in God? And he said, I'd be astonished, right? So I, so I said, well, I have a book here where every chapter is written by a different scientist who believes in God. So I lent him that book. But so these things happen from yeah. time to time. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Isn't, isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> mm. um, and what have you made of some of the well-known science popularizers like Richard Dawkins, for instance, who have obviously been very... Mm out and you know mm. uh, almost militant really with their their anti-religious sort of views i mean mm. have you just sort of rolled your eyes or have you tried to engage with those kinds of views as as they've come up yes so so i've engaged with richard dawkins a little so uh this isn't going back in time we were both on a bbc world service broadcast about science and religion mm. and in fact it is going back in time but richard dawkins and myself were in the studio in london and there was a Roman Catholic in a studio in Rome. Mm. And then there was the Archbishop of York at the time called John Hapgood mm. in a studio in New York. And we're having this four-way discussion about science and religion. So, yeah, I've come across Richard, <laughs> in, uh, Richard Dawkins in person as well as how, reading his how, books. Yeah. How did that go? Was, was he very dogmatic or were you, did you feel you, um, he saw your point of view? Well, it, it was, I mean, it was early, earliest days for Richard yes. Dawkins. Mm. Uh, he hadn't written The God Delusion. No, he hadn't written like The God that, Delusion. Point, right. But he, at one stage, he made what was a strange statement, uh, which everyone was surprised by. And he said, a living dog is more important than a human embryo. And the Roman Catholic per I just sat back, the Roman Catholic person, John Habgood, you know, took him to pieces, really, because they said, what do you mean by more important? Do you mean more important potential? Are you saying mm. you know, a living dog's got more important potential than a human embryo? And Richard Dawkins really became quite cross. Oh, right. And um, he left the studio as soon as possible after that, oh, know, right. even though it was the last one in the series. And, yeah. and in the studio, we had cake and stuff to celebrate. Oh, right. So he's so so quite cross then. But I think he's you know, <laughs> learned a few lessons, well, yes, so, if I may say so. Yes. <laughs> you may say so. <laughs> yes. um, no, it, fascinating stuff. We're going to talk um, in the next section a little bit more as well about some of the research you've done into Old Testament miracles, which mm. is very interesting um, research you've done in a in a book um, which is called The Miracles of Exodus: A Scientist Discovery of the Extraordinary Natural Causes of the Biblical Stories. But but just before we get to that, um, just give us a sense of how your career progressed. You you obviously did the physics degree, um, and then you went into this whole area of material sciences mm. and so on. Um, and many people will know you for the work you've done in biblical issues around these things. But but what sort of advances would you say you've you've been able to contribute to scientifically? And, and you know, give us a little flavour mm. of how your career has panned out in that kind of a way. Right. So I've been a sort of scientific nomad, and I've wandered around a bit. So so I um, first degree in Imperial College London in physics. I came to Cambridge in the Cavendish Laboratory, got a PhD in physics. I then went to Oxford into the metallurgy department there. Mm. So that's when I made that move from physics to what was then called metallurgy. And metallurgy now broadened into material science, a whole range of materials. So I was at Oxford for a number of years. Then I went to Liverpool as head of department of materials engineering in Liverpool. And I came back to Cambridge uh, as a professor in Cambridge. And then after a year, I was head of department of the, of the materials department in Cambridge. So that's a sort of journey I've mm, done. Yeah. Uh, and then and recently, I should say, I've left Cambridge and come to Queen Mary this oh, year right. in, in London. Right, gosh. Yeah, so yes. you really have moved around quite a bit. Mm. And, and in that time, how, how have you seen the area that you work in develop significantly? Has, has Would you say that there's, you know, mm. been a lot of progress in the time that you've been engaged with it? There's been huge process. And really, the main thing which has happened 
is that in the past, people develop better materials by trial and error. Mm. You know, so if they want to make a stronger steel, they're trialing a bit more carbon to it or a bit of chromium. Just see mm. what happened, trial mm. and error. Mm. And now we understand sufficient about the science of what's happening. We can design new materials from first principles mm. and design things which don't exist in nature. Materials mm. don't exist in nature. And so it's this materials design element for a particular purpose which has changed the subject and, dramatically. And I, I'm sure that your research has been involved, you know, at some level been responsible for some of the gadgets we hold in our hands, our mobile phones and things like that. All of these require very specific kinds of materials in order to make them do the jobs that they do, don't they? Yeah, they do. That's right. So so I, I set up a, a, a centre in collaboration with Rolls-Royce in Cambridge and we've developed materials which are now flying in Rolls-Royce engines. Gosh. Mm. And uh, it gives them a competitive advantage over there, you know, competitors in, in the USA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then more recently, I've been working on gallium nitride LEDs, LEDs, light-emitting diodes. So mm. all the low-energy LEDs you buy in the shops now are based on gallium nitride. And my group developed a way of making them more cheaply. And uh, this, has le- this has contributed to the cost of LEDs coming down yes, a lot. Yes, well, I was going to say that they used to be rather expensive these yeah. days. They're very much replacing the traditional halogen or um you know yeah, that's type, type right. of lighting that's that's been around very interesting yes. we're going to continue this conversation mm-hmm. um <laughs> here on the profile uh, my guest today is a cambridge university scientist sir colin humphreys and we're going to be talking about uh, the miracles of exodus in the next section of the program because as well as being a scientist colin has turned his hand uh, to a great deal of um looking into the the history of the bible and the miracles there and if you want to find out more about him you can uh, find him in various places but one of them you might try is the faraday institute he was a founder member of that particular institute looking to bring together science and faith uh, in Cambridge. That's uh, faraday.stedmonds.cam.ac.uk if you want the website. If you want to listen back to today's programme, again, we're available as a podcast wherever you get your podcast from. And don't forget to uh, get hold of a free sample copy of our sister magazine, Premier Christianity magazine as well, where you can read profiles on a monthly basis with interesting people like Sir Colin Humphreys. Uh, again, you can get a free sample copy at Premier Christianity dot com slash free sample i'm justin briley and i'll be back with colin in just a moment's time premier christianity magazine in this month's issue he's the pastor famous for marrying kanye west and kim kardashian we talked to the mega church preacher rich wilkerson jr jesus told us to love our neighbors but do we even know who they are read our shocking report plus discover how catholics are questioning the pope's views on doctrine and why are so many young men following jordan b peterson for your free copy visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample the profile you're listening to premier christian radio Welcome back to the second part of this week's edition of The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio and listen to Around the World as a podcast. Find out more at premierchristianradio.com slash the profile or wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget to subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. And if you're not sure about it, why not ask for a free sample copy? We send out hundreds of those every month to people who simply ask at the website premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have on the profile with me today Sir Colin Humphreys, Cambridge University scientist and someone who's also dedicated a lot of time to looking into the history of the miracles in scripture and the dating of uh, Jesus's crucifixion and other interesting aspects like that. Uh, and uh, we're, we're really looking forward to, to getting into the the question of some of these really interesting and dramatic Old Testament miracles in this section of the program, Colin. But before we get into that, fill in a few of the gaps we haven't heard about yet about your life. You're, you're married, obviously. Am, when when yes. did you meet your wife, and and what were the circumstances of of you coming together? In right. That way? So, so I met my wife at um, Imperial College in London. Uh, when I was there, there were three thousand men students and one hundred women students. And I was sharing a room with another physics undergraduate at the time in the third year. And he came in one day and he said, I've discovered a new woman at Imperial <laughs> College, right? <laughs> they're a very rare breed I know, at that time. Very rare breed, yes. <laughs> and, um, um, and so, and so uh, 
I, I he said he was going to data right, and, <laughs> and, but but I, I won't go into I, data. I can imagine that there was a lot of competition given the the very varying. <laughs> that's, yeah, that is right. Yes. So so so. <laughs> firstly, I take it your wife also came from a scientific background. Then, uh, so she was doing chemistry. Right. Put material. That's right. Yes, I see. Yes. And you were one of the lucky three thousand who got one of the one. <laughs> one that, that's right. Yes. <laughs> well, well, there's probably some scientific reason for that as well. But but anyway, love blossomed and right. uh, and and. Obviously, did you did you both continue in scientific careers, or, or did things change after? Yes, my after wife university? went into teaching, mm. so she did. A, in fact, I went out with her a few times at Imperial College, and then I went to Cambridge to do a PhD. And by chance, as it were, in quotes, got France. Mm. My my wife went to Cambridge to do a PG a postgraduate certificate oh, right. in education, become a chemistry teacher. So and you we, were you were moving in the same direction, moving in the same direction. Yeah. And I happened to meet her in the street um, outside King's College. On the first week, we were both there, and we just by chance met in the street. I said, let's go and have a cup of coffee, and then we started going out again. Gosh. So that's what happened. There yes, yes. <laughs> and and w- what about your relationship with church throughout all this? Did, did, did you simply sort of continue going? Were you um, being invited to talk about how you put your science and faith together? What began your interest in actually doing what you do now, effectively, through Faraday Institute in terms of helping Christians to, to bring science and faith together? Right. So, yes, so I... Um, we went to church in, in Cambridge, um, and I, I've, all, I've actually never gone to a particular denomination. Mm. Um, so I just go to church where I feel, feel most comfortable in. And mm. so I went to an Anglican church in, in Cambridge. Uh, when I was brought up in a Baptist church, I've been to United Reformed churches. Mm. So, so I've gone to church. And then uh, I've been asked to talk occasionally, and, and sometimes a bit more than occasionally, on, on science and religion. And so that's how I got... When you're asked to talk, you have to think about what you're going to say, and so mm. you get more involved mm. then as well. Mm. Absolutely. And, and eventually... Uh, getting involved with organizations like the Faraday Institute and so on. Um, Do you think that those sort of uh, organizations that exist to help Christians bring science and faith together are more needed today than they were perhaps when you began, you know, as as a young scientist, because perhaps there's more scepticism around these days and more of that narrative that there is this conflict, apparent conflict between science and faith? Yeah, I, I think they're very much more needed. I think that um, Richard Dawkins has actually been very successful. I mean, his 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 has persuaded so many people that there is this conflict and has been very successful. And I don't think Christians have done enough to counter this, in fact. Mm, mm. Um, so, you know, I've got, I admire him for his success in, in a way, right? <laughs> um, and, and I also think that science, people now believe in science so much more. And I sometimes think, going back, you know, there's a guy called Billy Graham had all these rallies. Yeah, yeah. And in, in his sermons, he used to always, so when he talked, he said, the Bible says, the Bible says. And people thought the Bible had authority then. But they that's not a given they don't, no, no, not at all. You yeah. can say that now. And they say, so what, people yeah. say. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And, and I think that there has been a major shift culturally. Yes. We, we live in this much more post-Christendom age mm. where there, there aren't the, sh- the shared assumptions uh, in, in that kind of way. Uh, and, and in a way, have, have you had to sort of, in that sense, I guess with every generation of students you come through, through do you find that they're more sceptical each time or do you find it's the same sorts of questions that are being asked every time that you, you meet new scientific students? I think some of the questions are the same. So, you know, creation and evolution keeps mm. coming up. Yeah. Um, and some of the questions are different. Mm. Um and I think people are looking more for meaning in life now. You know, I think when I was a student, you thought, oh, we're going to get a job and maybe get married and, you know, and, and, and uh, didn't. But now people are quite worried about the future. Mm. And there's a lot more worried students about now than when I was a student. Do, do you think, I mean, having obviously, yeah, engaged a lot with student bodies, I mean, I think we do see statistics and stories about the fact that mental health issues are, are mm. at an all-time high among students. There's a lot of anxiety around mm. over exams and pressure and that sort of thing. Perhaps it's part of the effect of living in a social media age where we all feel far more exposed and, you know, that we have to keep up with our peers and everything else. You just but you sense that you've seen that just in the students you engage with. Oh, I think very much so. That's right. right. And in, I mean, in in college, I'm in in Cambridge. um, So in college, we uh, and all the colleges, they they just see many more students have have mental health problems now than they ever had in the past. Is there anything you can attribute that to in any way or would, would hazard a guess at? I think it's a variety of factors. I think, I think that uh, um, the internet hasn't helped in a sense because, mm. because you know having all these friends on Facebook, they're not real friends, mm. and you know, and people communicate by text messages rather than going and speaking to them, and so just relationships become more difficult, yeah. and also. Um, if someone picks on someone to bully them, you know, when school ended, that would be the end of it. You go home, you're yeah. okay. It's not the end of it now. Cause you of, can't you know, escape it. Yeah, you can't you're, escape you're constantly it. connected. Yes. I, I can see that. Um, I, I suppose in some ways, as well as being a, 
a tutor and someone who teaches do you try to offer some pastoral assistance where you can to people who are going through those sorts of issues where i can i mean I, i'm quite careful to not talk I, I usually don't bring that up in the conversation no. so people know i'm a christian mm. right because actually in, in my office at work i have some christian books where i don't place there i just have them because they're there mm. because i want mm. to look at them sometimes mm. you know mm. and and uh, and, and it, well it is known as i'm a christian so but i i then leave it for people to bring up if yeah. they wish to bring yeah. it up yeah. yes let's talk about some of the work really interesting stuff you've done on on the issue of Old Testament miracles. Um, there was uh, some articles that did the rounds a little while ago, talking about the fact that you believed you had pinpointed uh, an event that many people, especially skeptics, would assume is just some sort of mythological event in the Old Testament. The the sun standing still uh, in the story of uh, in Joshua, um, and and that's um, that can be found in uh, Joshua ten. I'll just give the context here. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Um... As I say, I'm sure if, if Richard Dawkins were here, he'd say, what a lot of stuff and nonsense, just, mm. just some, some old fairy tale, mm. you know. Mm. Um, that's not the approach you take to scripture. So when you find a story like that, what's your initial response? Is it scepticism? Is it, no, I think I, I'm committed that there, there must be something behind this and I'm going to look into it. How, how do you approach these, these issues? So it is the latter because I, I found in the Bible that, that so much which you can be sceptical about mm. turns out to be true that I, I think, you know, this is probably true, but you can't understand it. So uh, in the past, when I give talks on science and Christianity, about one third of those talks, people ask me about the sun standing still. Mm. And I've always said, I just do not know. I don't know what's, what's really being meant here. And, uh, and, I, and then I thought to myself, I really should look into this in more detail. Mm. And so I thought, let's see what the Hebrew actually says, which, of course, is the obvious thing to think. <laughs> Go see, to the text. Go yes. to the text. Yeah. And I don't know Hebrew, but I have what are called concordances mm. and so I looked up what this word which was translated in the sun stood still Hebrew words are called dom I think what it actually means and it actually means silent it does mean still but it can mean silent as well mm. and in fact silent is its main meaning and so I thought to myself well what does it mean if the sun's silent and I thought what does it mean if I'm silent it means I stop speaking so if the sun's silent it stops doing what it normally does it stops shining mm. and then you immediately think for your scientists what about solar eclipse? Because then the, the sun apparently stops shining. And so I thought this was a great new idea. Mm. And so I then contact someone called Professor Alan Millard, who's a great expert in, in ancient Hebrew and Semitic languages at the University of Liverpool. And he says to me, Colin, that's not a new idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so, I say, yeah, so, so, so I say, OK, what, what's, what's the story? He says, a hundred years ago, a distinguished linguist at Princeton University said this should have been translated, the sun was eclipsed. And not only did this linguist say that, he said... In ancient Babylonian texts that talk about solar eclipses, the word the Babylonians use for a solar eclipse has the same root as this biblical word that's used in Joshua. So, um, Alan Millar said, it, you know, it really should be translated that the sun didn't stop moving, the sun stopped shining. And all what happened is uh, King James Version of the Bible, you know, 1611, mm, mm. that said the sun stopped moving. And, and everyone's everyone, followed that. Everyone yeah. has followed it. That's yeah, that's right, interesting. Which is interesting. Um, yeah. and, and so it, it sort of changes the picture then. If, it, yes. if we're not talking about a sun that stands still in the sky, yes. but rather rather the opposite in a sense, stops yeah. shining. Yes. That kind of maybe puts a different picture on why the Israelites were able to win over their enemies. Yes. So do you want to just walk us through that? That's right, because I think they, w they would have been... I mean, it's a terrifying sight. Most mm. of the people were terrified. They didn't know what was happening when mm. the sun stopped shining. And, uh, and so here's the Israelites who were chasing their enemies at the time, these Amorites, and uh, they were already winning the battle and chasing them. And then suddenly this, this event happens in the sky and the Israelites are winning, and the Amorites think, you know, God's on their side, mm. and they complete a victory. And um, the Israelites complete a victory. And some of the commentators on the book of Joshua, this is one of the early victories, they're surprised so easily 
Joshua and Israelites sweep through the land of Canaan. It's just done very mm, quickly and mm, rapidly. Mm. But you know, if this was this, this would have been seen as eclipse on all of Canaan, and they would have been they would have said, "Look, God's on the side of this." Right? So they would have been terrified. Yeah. So I collaborated again with with Graham Waddington, who who is a great yeah, astronomer. Yeah. And um, and you worked out uh, and we where, worked when out, that eclipse might likely. We have been. worked out that there's that's that there in in the time period for. Joshua being in Canaan, mm. if you say 1500 BC to 1000 BC, and mm. it's, no, it's definitely in that period, <laughs> yeah. right? Then there's only one solar eclipse visible over Canaan. And the date of that eclipse fits very nicely with the date we think Joshua was there in Canaan anyway. Right. So it's, it's a, a so unique solution. it feels solution. like different pieces of yeah. evidence came together yeah. it's to, to, give, to give you it's this right hypothesis. That's right, yes. Very interesting. Mm. Um, and as you say... It, so often we are guided by the way people have translated certain bits of scripture yes. and that then informs what we think must be going on That's but right. then you go back to the text and you realize ah oh, maybe mm. there's a different way of understanding this particular yes. miracle i know that you've done that with other uh, other 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 examples so talk to us about um probably one of those miracles that is one of the best known from the old testament the parting of the red sea mm. uh, in the story of exodus moses and the people of israel passing through as they escape from the uh, the Egyptians chasing them hot on their tail, and then of course the waters coming down on the Egyptian army as they try mm. to to catch up with the escaping Israelites, um, we've seen it in many you know grand epic films, both old and new. Um, but I think again, a lot of people would be saying, "Well, it's just a story. It's just one of those you know, mm. it's tales, mm. if you like." Mm. Uh, again what what made you want to look into that and and how did you come to actually start to think about that particular from a scientific mm, point of view right well actually this is a really interesting case because the bible is explicit that this was a natural event the bible actually says yes. that moses stretched out his hand over the waters and god sent a strong east wind which blew the waters back all night and as a scientist, I immediately thought of a scientific mechanism. So let, I'll just give a simple, simple explanation. Mm. Have a glass of water. You can do it at home. It's pretty obvious. Don't <laughs> need to do it. Glass of water, fill it up to the top, and then blow over the surface. You blow the water back, and it falls out of the other side of the glass sure. onto the floor. Right? Mm. It's just obvious. And um, there's a mechanism called wind set down, where if it's a strong wind, and the Bible said it was a strong wind, and if that blows a, along a body of water, it pushes the water back, and it pushes it back by a considerable distance. So if it's on a sloping shoreline, the water's pushed back and shipwrecks are being discovered like that. Mm. Um, Lake Erie in America, I know you're lots of American but, uh, mm -hmm. listeners, Lake Erie in America, the, the maximum recorded height difference between one, part, one end of the lake in, in New York, in Buffalo, New York, the other end of the lake in Toledo, Ohio, is 15 feet, Gosh. right, with a strong wind. Now, but what has to happen is it's a gradual process mm. and the water's gradually pulled back. And to get that maximum height difference, the wind has to blow for several hours, right? What's the Bible say? It blew all night. Right. So the wind forces it back mm. and the, the wind then holds it back. And so the Israelites are able to cross on, on dry land. But then Moses stretched out his hand again and the wind stopped. And immediately, immediately the is, it comes it, back. It all goes back to equilibrium. Yeah, right. and you can do you can do the mathematics. It actually comes back as a ball wave. No, it doesn't right. come back normally it, because the water's standing as a wall of water. Right, the wind <laughs> stopped. It comes back as a ball wave. It's like the seven ball, you know, and it just kind of obliterates yeah, everything you, in its path. Yeah, yeah, you can actually you can calculate the speed at which it comes Gosh. back. It comes back at sixty miles an hour typically. Mm, mm. And and uh, if if you're a, a rider on a you know horse rider as the Egyptians were, it would knock you off your horse. You know, so so it makes sense scientifically. This was most recently represented in the major motion picture. Um, uh, King, uh, what was it called? God, Gods and Men. Was that the the name of the one by Ridley Scott? Oh um, yes. Uh, and yes. I seem mm. to think he must have taken a leaf out of that that explanation because that's very much okay. the way in which the the event was represented uh, in in the film as well. Very oh. interesting. I mean, what what it makes me wonder though is is some people may be thinking well that's that's fascinating that to come up with a sort of natural explanation mm. for all of these events but does that in a sense stop them being miraculous and because you're explaining mm. them naturally mm. Mm. Ha have they stopped in that sense yeah. being supernatural yes yeah. yeah that's a really good question so so what i'd like to emphasize is that I've explained these events in scientific terms, but I haven't explained them away. I haven't mm. explained. So, what's what is the miracle? Is the miracle of timing? And so, uh, when this event occurred, it was just when the Israelites were on the banks of the Red Sea, 
and they were trapped by Pharaoh's army. And if this event had happened uh, one day later or one day earlier, they would have been. It wouldn't mm-hmm. made it. You know, they, yeah. they, they yeah. just this precise timing, and that's the miracle. Mm. And um, and I think we've got a lot to learn from that because I think God does a lot of miracles in a day like this. These things which we call chance events, you know, mm. uh, are mm. actually in yeah. God's eyes, you know, yeah. not chance events. That, that's very interesting. And so, so, in that sense, you're not saying miracles don't happen it's just that what we often term a miracle is actually god using a natural event and god's timing and purposes right. being fulfilled through yes. through that yeah. yes that's what, right. what are the miracles would you look at in a similar vein in in the old testament in in the book that you wrote so so i i think quite a lot of them actually mm. I, I think so, well, so people before me have looked at the the ten plagues of Egypt, mm. and they are actually a sort of connected series of natural events. Okay, can um, you take us through them? I know we haven't got oodles <laughs> right, of time, yes, but yes. but, but um, yes, it, I'd be fascinated to hear how how they maybe feed off one another yes. in, in, in a kind of a logical sequence. Okay, I'll have to remember in the correct sequence. <laughs> so, so, so it's hard. But 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 I just just start. With it. So so the first miracle is is the water of the Nile turned to blood, mm. right? And um, uh, and so there's a natural mechanism for that, and the natural mechanism is uh, when algae do what are called blooming, and what happens is when the temperature's high and there's nutrients in the water, algae can turn blood red and they emit toxins, and uh, and, and all the fish die because they emitted toxins. Mm. This still happens today. So you could just Google uh, algae blooming, toxins, fish dying, and o- over the world, America, all sorts of places, you know, hundreds of thousands of fish will die. So a, this is a natural event. And, and I'm sure people that, liken it to the, the, the first of the plagues of, of yes. Egypt uh, when it happens in a natural sense. Yeah, they, they do yeah, sometimes. Yeah, that, that's yeah, right. In the yeah, newspapers will say it's like yeah, the plague of Egypt. That's yeah. right. And, and, then, um, and then I think the next plague is of... Fl- is of Frogs, yes, and uh, and they go into people's houses, mm. and that's because I think the frogs are living in in, in the water, and and the water turns toxic, right? And, right, and, and so they so get they, out. They, of, they lose yeah, their natural habitat. The, the, the fish die, which is recorded mm. in the yeah. Exodus. Yeah, the frogs actually leap out of the water, <laughs> and they just go on land, and they go into people's houses, and it's just this plague of frogs in people's houses, and then the frogs die because they don't have food in the people's houses, nothing to eat. And then the plague of flies comes because of all the dead frogs, you know, the flies see. come. And so you can go on through the 10 plagues like yeah. this. So, so it, there's, there's, I mean, I'm just looking it up now because I right, can't okay. remember off the top of my head. But you've got the water into blood. Yes. You've got the frogs. Yes. You've got the, um, uh, the yes, the, the lice uh, or the, um, I suppose that's the flies really is what's mean, meant there. Um, yeah. The wild, the fourth plague of Egypt was creatures um, capable of harming people and livestock um, were, uh, were struck down. Uh, and then there was diseased livestock, the boils, yes. hail and fire, yeah. uh, locusts, yes. darkness for three days, yes. and of course the death of the firstborn. So, right. so you think there's a sort of a natural kind of there's a natural sequence. It, sequence. It, it's broken with the hail because right. that that occurs not linked to the previous ones. No. But what is very interesting is um, following the hail, you get the swarm of locusts. And uh, locusts are always flying around there in the Middle East, uh, but they ate, they lay their eggs four inches deep, and so it has to be soft sand, soft mm. soil, and they, it has to be damp soil. And so the, this, the, this this hail which comes down will have really saturated the soil and made it damp. So so locusts come and lay their eggs there, and you get the plague of locusts. I see. Um, Gosh, so yeah. so that's all. And then then the crops are eaten by the right. You know, yeah. And and in a sense. The other question that might be playing on people's mind is, in a sense, we've all, we all know the story of the Ten Plagues and the way in which it was used to, you know, enable the people of Israel to be set free from slavery and so on. But of course, it may still sit uneasy with people. They think, did God have to, to, to use this kind of very uh, dramatic and, and in a sense violent, you know, ultimately with the, the death of the firstborn mm-hmm. way of um, getting through to Pharaoh in order for the people to be released? Um not everyone likes the implications, if you like, of, of mm. these kinds of tales in the Old Testament, where obviously people die. There mm. are, mm. you know, physical mm. events that, that uh, you know, at the hand of God, which cause these things. How do you respond, in a sense, not just as a scientist looking mm. at the interesting, you know, mm. you, you can kind of stand, stand yes. back and look yes. rather objectively at it and say, isn't it interesting? But yeah. to the fact of the, you know, that the, the Old Testament does contain stories in which the, these acts of violence essentially occur... Mm. And how, how does that help you? How do you reconcile that with the God of love we obviously find expressed in Jesus Christ? Right. So, I mean, that is, that is a good question. And, and um, I would say with, with the plagues that um, on the one hand, it was Moses versus Pharaoh. 
But it's quite clear from the story, it's the God of Moses versus the God of Pharaoh. I mean, that, mm. That's the subtext all the mm. way along. Mm. And, um, uh, and Pharaoh has every opportunity to back down, you know, and, and, and so the plays get more severe. Mm. I mean, the, the first play, The River Now Turning to Blood, I mean, that's, that's not terribly bad for the Egyptians because the, the, text, of Gen- the, text, of, the text of Exodus actually mm. says that uh, they dug by the banks of the Nile and they could mm. drink water right. then. And so this is, this is a nice idea of early filtration that the, these, mm. these mm. red poisonous algaes are being filtered out and the water right. gets through, okay. right? And, and they should drink it. But then each, each, each plague is more and more severe. And Pharaoh can back down at any time and he doesn't. And so I think in, the, in God's great salvation plan... It's important that the Israelites leave Egypt mm. and they, they get to their promised land. And so how are they going to get there unless Pharaoh eventually mm. backs down? And it takes the death of the firstborn to, for Pharaoh to say, you can go. But it's ultimately Pharaoh's it's, hardness of heart that is. is bringing the judgment. Yes, that's, yeah, that's yeah. right. It's, it's, so, it's very interesting stuff. Thank you yeah. so much for sharing. The time's flown by, <laughs> oh, as right. it always does yes. on the profile. And so much more that, that it would be interesting to, to cover here. Um, I, I suppose what's interesting to me is that you obviously come to the text as a scientist looking for scientific ways of understanding it. Mm. Um, but also, I, I assume there's also a um, an assumption that, that you're, you're dealing with something that is historical from the outset. So you've come assuming that the Bible is true and you're going to look mm. for ways in which to, obviously someone like Richard Dawkins, you know, mm. who we've been talking about, might come assuming it's false, right. you know, and yes. say, "Well, I'm not." That means I don't have to look for ways in mm. which this could. So, w- is that simply an act of faith to sort of say, "I do believe this is historically true, and therefore I'm going to look for ways in which I can I can understand these stories from a scientific perspective," or, or, or is it something else? I don't know. What, what, how? Wh- when you're right. coming to this, are yes. you are you looking to have the stories for? Um, you know, backed up, as it were, by by what you find in your science. Right. So that's a good question. So, <laughs> so if if I'm coming to this in an academic sense, as I sort of do, yes. that then um, I am I, I I take the Bible seriously, and I say I think this this uh, it needs to be taken seriously. So how can we understand it? And uh, many people, many historians do not take the Bible seriously, mm. which I find hard to understand. They'll take Egyptian texts seriously, mm. where they're always biased, and they'll take you know, Babylonian texts seriously. They're, they're always biased because they're the scribes wanting mm. to please their mm. rulers. Uh, but they will not take the biblical text seriously. So I take it seriously. Um, I, I, it's an academic exercise in a way. So I don't, I, I, you know, I have to be prepared to fail, as it yes, were. Yes, you're, you're but, open to yeah, being I'm, proved wrong. I'm open to being proved wrong, that's right. But I take it seriously, and then I, I study it seriously. And uh, and there are some things I still can't explain. And then Paul says, we look through the last dark, <laughs> there yeah. are many things, many things I can't explain. But there are many... Look, with science, I'm a great fan of science, but with the universe... We can only account for about 5% of it. The rest is dark energy, dark matter. <laughs> I don't say I'm going to throw science overboard because 95% of the universe we can't <laughs> understand, you know. Yeah, and and yeah. with the Bible, we, we understand yeah, yeah. probably 95% of the Bible. Yes. Well, look, it's, <laughs> it's been such such fun talking to you. Thank you very much for coming in studio to, to talk through these. Yeah. Um, if you want to find out more about the book, uh, it's available through Amazon and, and other places too. Uh, uh, the, the, the most recent one, though, is actually the book you did on the... Um, on the the dating of the Passover and mm. uh, and the, the crucifixion of Christ and so on, but if going back a few few more years, you'll get to the miracles of Exodus, uh, a scientist discovery of the extraordinary natural causes of the biblical stories. And if people want to find out more, uh, Faraday Institute is that a good place to go? And hear? yes, I think they have videos of, of my lectures, but also other people. It's a great resource, the yeah. Faraday Institute, for just learning more. And I know that there are some of your lectures are also on YouTube. If you want to look there, um, just look for Sir Colin Humphreys' miracles. Those kinds of entry terms will tend to get you in the right direction but uh, it's been really interesting talking to you thank you very much for coming into studio today justin great pleasure thank you very much (laughs) you've been listening to the profile with me justin briley thanks for being with me and uh, don't forget you can listen back to today's show as a podcast go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and don't forget while you're there to ask for a free sample copy of our sister magazine premier christianity you can find the free sample at premierchristianity.com slash free sample we'll have another interesting guest for you at the same time next week for the moment coming up next premier playback playing you some of the best bits from the past week